I have to tell you, I was excited about this passage. Our senior pastor, Tom, uh, is suffering for Jesus doing a wedding up on Lake Michigan. And, um, and uh, usually when I get to preach, it, it ends up being some horrific text that's very complicated or, or has some huge cultural baggage in it that I have to try and explain. And, and so, um, and, and in, even in this book of 2 Corinthians, Paul has really been laying it to the Corinthian church that he's written this letter to. He's been letting them have it, you know. He's been kind of correcting behaviors and attitudes and, and, and challenging sins and all these kinds of things. And he's kind of been doing the football coach thing on them. And finally, it eased into this moment that we have today in this passage where it's sort of this warm breeze of encouragement. And I thought, I thought that I would get to preach a message not on being honest with yourself, but on resting in His grace. I thought we could all enjoy that together. And so this week I was talking to a friend, a dear buddy of mine on the phone, who's very faithful about doing his personal worship, so he'd been spending time in the text. And I said, hey, listen, if there's anything that you'd like me to dial in on, if I was going to dial in on anything in this passage, what would it be? And I thought he'd talk about the encouragement and all that sort of thing. And He says, you know, my eyes went laser focused to the very last verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And he confessed to me, That even as a faithful Christian, he's unsure how to measure his walk with Christ. He doesn't know what it should feel like to be a mature and faithful Christian. He doesn't know what the target is, but here's what he does know. He knows that every day he lives in a perpetual state of fear that even though he can't put his finger on it, he's not hitting it. Why do I get up in the morning? What's this daily grind all about? How do I sleep at night? How do I process my fears? What's going to happen when I die? So he wrestles with this. We wrestle with these two fundamental questions. Why do we get up in the morning? Why do we go through the grind? You have those fundamental questions in this world when... When that baby wakes you up an hour too early and it's the fifth night a day in a row that the baby has done that and maybe there's three babies or two babies and a toddler poking you in the eye. Maybe you woke up at 4.30 in the morning because you know you have a business meeting today that will either mean great prosperity or bankruptcy and your wife doesn't know about it because you don't want to alarm her. You've just been carrying it around. Maybe you know that you've been struggling with a sin and that's what wakes you up in the morning. You've been struggling with something that you know goes on the wrong side of the scale and you can't escape it. Or maybe, maybe you just wake up because your alarm went off to send you to a job where there's a fluorescent light beaming in your eye where you sit mindlessly in front of a computer and do the same thing all day knowing knowing that you'll come home and you'll eat the same thing for dinner and you'll go to bed and then you'll do it all over again the next day and you say, what is the grind all about? Why do I wake up? Up in the morning. I don't care whether you're a Christian not or not, you, you wonder those things. I'll tell you what you also wonder. You wonder what happens in the end. You just do. In your most honest moments, you know that the statistic is one in one. We all will face this moment. And you want to know what happens. So there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news, and really it's not bad news, it's good news, but the bad news, so we think, is what this man just said. It is a fact, it is true that everything you do matters. 
Every action, every thought, every attitude, everything in which you participate does one of two things. It either, it either contributes to human flourishing or it damages it. That's a fact. It's a reality. And that should be scary to you if you're worried about that scale thing. And in some sense, you, w- you should be because God is a just God. But it should also inspire you to know that when you get up in the morning to the crying baby or to the fearful business meeting or to the same drudgery in your job, there is a reason. It matters what you do. It matters. Because it matters to God. But here's the good news. The good news is that the God who made you will give you purpose in life and He will give you peace in death. The God who made you, that's important. One of the things we struggle with in our culture is the fact that we've been untethered from anything eternal and absolute. So what you're told is, it is up to you to figure out what truth is. The old movie City Slickers, when he tells the guy one thing, you got one thing you got to do in life. And he says, what's that one thing? And he says, that's what you've got to figure out. And it sounded very profound, but it's horrifying. It leaves you drifting in an ocean of uncertainty. So the message of the world kind of goes like this. It's up to you fig- to figure out what the scale is. It's up to you to define that for yourself. And then to figure out how to get on that scale with your limited capacities. And here's what we all know if we're honest with ourselves. If there is a scale, it only only measures one thing. It doesn't measure pretty good. It doesn't measure better than Adolf Hitler. It measures perfection. Perfect attitudes, perfect actions, perfect motivations, perfect everything. If there's a scale that measures something... It only measures perfection and it is infinitely heavy compared to our meager efforts to jump up and down on the other side with our good behaviors. So we think, and we don't even know what that is. We can't even define it. Are lies always wrong? Are there white lies? Are there good lies? Is there some continuum of lies? Where do those go on the scale? Well, that takes a lot more faith to believe in than it does to believe that you were created by someone in that someone's image. That part of the proof of that is that you have the ability even to conceive of that someone. You have the ability to know love and justice and beauty and mercy. You have the ability to create. Where did that come from? It makes a lot more sense to believe that that was imprinted on you by a designer than nothing that became something, that became something alive, that became something intelligent, that became you. There's a God who made you after his image. He will give you purpose in life and he will give you peace in death. But you have to accept a premise. And this is maybe the simplest way to to understand Christianity. The premise is this. You were not made for you. If you want purpose in life and if you want peace in death, you must first understand you were not made for you. You were made for him. And it was his right to do so. And you were made for his purposes. Now the beautiful thing is that his purposes are beautiful. His purpose was to create creators. His purpose was to put you on an earth that he created to cultivate it and do what he did. And more of it. 
He compares the earth to a royal garden and he says, go and cultivate the garden. He says, be fruitful and multiply. That doesn't just mean have babies. That means groom the garden, till the garden, grow the garden, expand the garden, bear its fruit. Create as I have created. And in so doing, in being the best of you, you will glorify me. There is a God. He made you. He made you for a purpose, and the purpose is not you. That's the problem with our friend here. The problem is that if there is this cosmic scale, and what I do good goes on the green side and buys me chips, and what I do bad goes on the red side and weighs against me, then that's all about me. That's all about me. That's all about me getting what I want in this life and in eternity. And then when I go to God, dealing with a struggle or needing something, I don't go to Him for Him or His purposes or anything grander than myself. I go to get what I want in this life and in the next. And I have news for you. A bunch of little islands trying to get what they want don't work together. And they don't make for anything greater. So we have to come to this with a premise, and the premise is that it's not about you. So if we come to Paul's text with this premise, it makes a lot more sense. And Paul comforts us in this journey. So let's take a look. Starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, for this light and momentary affliction is being prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light and momentary affliction. Keep in mind, those words were spoken by a man who had lost all of his earthly authority and power. He'd given up his influence. He'd given up largely his ability to make money. He had been persecuted, he'd been shipwrecked, he'd been beaten, he'd been left for dead. And he dealt with all the controversies of the church at the same time. Was he delusional? Not if, through those afflictions, God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. As we look not on the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what Paul does is he takes these Corinthians who are just like, the, like us, and he, he catches these people in their daily grind, and then he takes their eyes and sets them on something else. Something far beyond our current existence. There's something out there beyond what we experience every day, Paul says. He declares us at first spiritual beings. He says, before you're physical, before you live in this transient world, you are spiritual. You are eternal. People with a purpose so grand that in his case, it turned beatings and shipwrecks and trials and imprisonments into light and momentary afflictions. He does the same thing with you. There's something out there that's worth living for, and it does not reside in this earth. It is a new heaven. It is a new earth. It is a new you. And he says, that is what to fix your eyes on. 
So the first thing that Paul does is he sets our eyes beyond our circumstances. Do you see that? He says, all these things you deal with externally in the world are temporary and transient, but you are part of a bigger purpose. But then he does this. He turns from our external circumstances to our inward selves, to our bodies. And he says this, for we, for we know that if the tent, that is our body, that is our earthly home is destroyed. And by the way, when he says destroyed, he doesn't just mean dies of old age or gets cancer or something like that. He literally means in this context with these Corinthians, if your body is destroyed through persecutions for this mission, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now, what he means by that is the body dies, and if you don't believe there's anything else, then you become, your soul is naked. It's stripped of its body, and it's lost forever. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. And I love this so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. Do you know why you fear death? Because it's not natural. Because the image of God imprinted on you was not made to die. You fear it because it's strange, it's foreign. You cling to life because it's life for which you were made. You know, I remember back when I was 18 years old. The human body is an amazing thing when you're 18 years old. Nothing hurts. Nothing. You don't know your body exists. You just run around in it. You can run and you can crawl and you can dive and you can climb and you can do it all day long. You can play sports. You can dive for a fly ball. You can slide into third. You can do all these things. You can get hit in the face. Anything can happen to you in the next day. You don't even know. You just do it again. It's the greatest thing ever. Oh, the youth of the body. But then as you get older, I remember the first time I ever had a pain. I thought I was dying. One little pain. It wouldn't even register on my radar today if I got that same pain. But then I thought I was dying because it did not know pain. But as you get older, what happens? The body begins to age and you begin to, re to get aches and pains and cracks and creaks. You begin to be more cautious. You begin to be limited in what you can do. There's a slowing that takes place, a constraining, a management. And the best you can do, if this is all there is, is try and patch that thing together and do things to pretend to be young in the body. You can work out and exercise and you should do all those things. You can eat right. You can do things to lift and tuck and tighten. And by the way, I, I've gotten reverse liposuction. I actually have fat infused because I'm so handsome at my actual weight that it's just, it's distracts from Jesus. So I actually have had, but you know, you can do all those things, but it only sort of staves off the inevitable. And sometimes it becomes comical because everybody knows. But what of the soul? 
What does that gospel that saves you, that good news that God is renewing the earth through Christ's work, what does it do to the soul when the soul is saved? What about that eternal part of me, my essence? In Christ, the trajectory is toward new life, boundless energy, new and fearless pursuit of adventure. The trajectory is toward 18. You're being made young again in spirit. Have you ever known anybody like that, that though they are old, they are young in spirit? I think of Art Stasekel. He's like 140 years old now. I don't know how old he is, but he's 10 times the, the energy and the youthfulness that I am in, my, in his soul. We were once on a staff retreat, and we were going to jump off a bridge 25 feet into a ripping current. We look over, and 70-something-year-old Art is in his shorts climbing up on the rail to jump in. You know why? Because his spirit is young. Because his spirit, though his body is failing, is fixed on an eternal weight of glory. And he doesn't care much about what's happening out here other than to maintain it that he might fulfill God's purposes in him. You are being made young again in spirit. This is the work that the gospel does after it saves you. We tend to think it only saves us, and then it's up to us. But that's not what Scripture says. It says that the gospel not only saves you, but it makes you new again every day, a new creation every day. If you give the Spirit the space to work in you, the inward body is being prepared for eternal use, youth. He renews your soul, and He makes it pure again. The gospel not only saves you, it sanctifies you. And though your body is afflicted, one day your suffering will be, burn this in your mind, swallowed up by life. As it was meant to be. So how do we know this? How do we know that this is true? How do we know that this scale thing isn't how it really works? How do we, is it just a surmising or a speculation? How do we know? Well, Paul says... In verse 5, He, God, who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit that comes in you when you come to Christ is like an engagement ring for that great day, that weight of glory, that day when you will be consummated once and for all in your marriage to Christ. The day for which you live. The day for which you die. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a little bit later in this book, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from where? From God. Who through Christ reconciled us to Him, and here comes the why we get up in the morning, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in case you didn't get it, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There it is. Why can I go to sleep at night? Because God's done the work. God does the saving. Why do I get up in the morning? To carry His purpose to the people I love. And the people I love should expand in love and in number every day I live. So we 
are always of good courage, he says. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, it's the same. We make it our aim to please Him. The rules don't change here. Well, here we're trying to please Him to get there, and then there we do what we want. No. Our attitude toward Christ is the same here and there because we're saved by His promises and not by our own. We aim to please Him in either place. For we, here it comes, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So if I've given my life to Christ, I don't fear the day of judgment anymore. I don't fear death I look forward to it with confidence. And I spend this life in service to Christ, reflecting His love and His beauty and His justice on this mission of renewal. It's what I do. And I do it in gratitude instead of self-interest. I live to please the Lord for the same reason you want your children to live to please you, to demonstrate their love, not to earn it from you. Life can't take me down now, no matter what comes my way, because this cause of Christ holds me up. While the outward is under attack, the external forces uh, and internal struggles and all these things and corruptions, the inner self is being renewed. So I don't have to fear death. I can rest easy at night. Let me tell you why. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, this is what he says about death. He says, followers of Christ shall never die prematurely. They shall be immortal until their work is done. And when their time shall come to die, then their death shall be precious. The Lord watches over the dying beds, smooths their pillows, sustains their hearts, and receives their souls for those who are redeemed with precious blood are so dear to God that even their deaths are precious to Him. I want to show you this premise. I want you to see this in action in real time today. I want you to see this idea that we aren't about us, that we find our confidence in death in God's work in us, and we find our mission in life in God's work through us. I want you to see it at work in something that this church has done. I want to show you a video. This video was taken in the Azil House, which is um, the Haitian government standard uh, of what we would understand to be an elderly home. Okay? So this is where your grandma and your grandpa live. And this place you're about to see is literally at the bottom of a town called Cabaret. And I say the bottom of a town because it's the property no one would want. It's down at the bottom or surrounded by buildings so that when all the rain and muck and everything uh, comes down, it flows into this space that nobody wants. So they've given it up for an elderly home. There's a concrete floor and there's a tin roof. And it's hopeless. And we walked through it last year. Let's take a look. So that's where your grandma and your grandpa live. In Haiti, they call them reverse orphans. 
They're the most forgotten people in their culture. The government recognized this. And they asked Mission of Hope, who we work with, to help them create a pilot program, a solution to this. And what those elderly people did not know is that God was watching over them. And those people walked into that room. Those were people who understand that, the light, that life is not about them. And that it's not about their purposes, but His. And they walked into that little space. And they began to bring the renewing love of Christ. They began washing the hands and the feet of the people there. And singing praises to Him and giving them hope. And all the while, God had been through this church and others doing this. And building them a new home. A new place called the Grace House. Up high by the ocean with the warm breeze that blows through it every morning. Giving them hope. Giving them rest. Do you see what the Lord has done here? And just a few days ago, we moved in the first resident. Some of them right from that place in Cabaret. And the Lord is attending over their beds. And the Lord is smoothing their pillows. And the Lord will be at their side when they go home. And He'll do it through His people. And that is why you get up in the morning. That is why you face the crying baby. That is why you face the meeting. That is why you face the grind. Because in it, somewhere, somehow, there is renewal to be found. There is beauty to be discovered. There is justice to be rewoven into the fabric of someone's life by God's hand through His people. That's why we get up in the morning and we rest easy at night knowing that we do that in response to His love, not to earn it. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Let's pray.